Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. It's so odd when I think about this crazy thing that we've been doing. I say we, you with the audience and me, because it's it's incomprehensible to me that between three and four million people have listened to podcasts that I've been on when I can't even stand the sound of my own voice. But for some reason, I guess the content or whatever it is that we're trying to present is working because, as you know, I always thought to myself after I sat down in a meeting, let's say, with a high-powered person like Amy Intracasso Davis, you'd sit and you'd meet with somebody, by the way, my guest today, who is in a corner office here, the one of the head honchos here at GS, and I just sit here in this office because normally I do things in my office, and you look in a corner office when you're in the corner office and you see the Emmys on the you know, on the table and, and you look and you say to yourself, you know, I want this. I want what this person has. But you realize you don't get what this person has unless you work really hard and you have aspirations of doing something early on in your life. And as I sit across from Amy, just something comes to mind that I think I want to talk about for the cold open. And again, as you all know, I have no idea what I'm going to say in the beginning, and then it just comes to me. And as I sit across from her, and she's giving me this wonderful smile, and I see the Emmys past her, I think about the work ethic and the belief in yourself from an early age of how you feel you need to get somewhere. Because let me tell you something, whatever job you're in, I don't care what you're in, you have to start at the bottom. 
And as you're starting at the bottom and you're moving up, very few people want you to win. Very few people want to like hug you and say, hey, there's the corner office. You know, I know I occupy it, but you know, I'm thinking this isn't for me and I want you to come in here. Now, what happens is people tend to be like ninjas from the background and they do things and they say things and meetings are behind your back or whatever and you never know what they're saying and you have to be a certain mindset to be able to deal with the the bullets that you take along the way to be able to get to an office like this and and as I sit here I think of a young man that called me 20 years ago in my office in New York and he was at UC San Diego and he was doing his own talk show there and he asked me if I could help him. He was 18 years old and he said he always had a dream of being a talk show host and he studied comedians from when he was a young kid and even when he was 14 in the talent shows at his high school, he was the only kid doing Karnak and Johnny Carson. And he was planning these elaborate shows that, he, that, that, that actually he petitioned for that, that students would come to them and get credits to be a part of working on the show. Yet he was 18 and he did it all through college and he called me about a big show he was doing outdoors with all these people and cables and cameras financing himself to help him get a guest, which I did. And I eventually ended up working with him throughout the years. And this person relates very well because spent many, many years doing a lot of different things and overcoming a speech impediment and things where he sometimes was paralyzed, where he couldn't even talk properly. But he always fought through that and got over it as best he could. It even reappeared one time on an episode of Chelsea Lately, where he just completely, it overcame him again, but then he came back to do really well and, and verbally beat up Chelsea and Bobby Lee and Joe Coy and everybody on the show. But one day he did something for GSN. I think it was Mind of a Man, and he must have done something when he came in to the executives at GSN saw something in him that said, maybe this person could do something for us. And if you're out there doing anything to get to the next level, when you go in someplace, the whole key is to blow people away, create moments in the room that people say, you know, this is kind of original and unique. Maybe we should give it a try. And Amy and one of her other heads, she works with Barry Nugent. I got a call saying that they wanted this person who'd all his life wanted to be a host of something and have something where he could call his own to come in and do a run through in a conference room. And unfortunately, this was the first time in three years that this person had planned a vacation with his family in New York City. And it was right in the middle of the vacation. And he called me back and he said, listen, I can't do this to my family. My family's mad at me. I can't do it. And we had a long discussion and we said, listen, you have to go. You have to go here. These opportunities don't present themselves that often. But if you're anybody out there and know anything about this crazy world of hosting a game show, it's one of the most difficult muscles that you could ever have because you think it looks easy. It's almost as difficult or more difficult than roasting, which is a whole different muscle. You see the Comedy Central roast. There's a reason why Jeffrey Ross does 11 roasts in a row. Granted, Jeffrey Ross is great at roasting, but 
I think they'd mix it up a little bit if there were a lot of people who could roast, but they can't. So when you go into a game show audition, the people in the room are not only looking for you to be funny, but they're looking for you to be able to drive the game forward, which is one of the hardest things for any comedian to do. So I talked to Ben, he talks to his family. I'm sorry, I talked to him, he talks to his family. He comes out here and he does the run through. And unbelievably, something crazy happened that I don't know has ever happened in my career. Get the call and they say, you know what? We had a guy that we thought was going to be the guy. He was all in the meetings. We talked about this other guy. But then your guy came in and he did something special. And we're going to go forward with him. He's not a household name. Now, another thing I'll say all of you out there, all over the world, tell me one game show you know where there's a guy hosting who isn't a household name. So not only does Amy and her team say, this guy in the room who did the run-through is our guy, and we want to move forward with 40 episodes without even doing a pilot episode from a conference room run-through. So not only does this person go in all his life, he's been going to this point, studying, putting in the hours, the 10,000 hours. He does it. He goes in from New York. He comes in for 12 hours. He blows away whoever else they have in mind for the show. And they decide they're not doing a pilot and they're doing 40 episodes. And then he gets into the season of the show. And like any young person on a show, let's face it, I'm sitting here with Amy. She may not say it, but if he doesn't do the job, he's out and they like the show. There's a household name in there. It's as simple as that. But he did the first season. And unbelievably, it seemed like only a month, maybe two months, three months after the season was over, get the call. You know what? We love him. We like the show. We're going to pick up another 65 episodes of the show. So even before a year seemed to be done, this young man who, when he was six or seven years old with a dream of being in this position, has done 105 episodes. And the person who made the decision that he was undeniable to be able to do that is sitting in front of me. And that young man is Ben Glebe for a game show called Idiot Test. And to all of you out there who have any aspirations at all, you should know at a young age, if you want to do something, don't let anybody talk you out of it. Keep going, fighting forward, do whatever you can to be the best you can be. And you may hit roadblocks for 20 years, but eventually all that work you put in, just like I'm sitting here with Amy in her office with her three Emmys and one at home, which is four, this young man has finally gotten his goal to not only be a host of a show that's a, a hit show on GSN, but also as a producer on the show, helping to write the show and really working closely because he had the dream. He never gave up. And when it came time, when the lights were shining on him and the money was on the line, he delivered. And if you deliver, you'll get to the corner office. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, 
or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now about the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening and passing on these podcasts that hopefully have inspired you to get to the next level. If you ever get the chance, I would be honored if you went to my website, barrycats.com slash podcast. And if you ever feel like buying anything on Amazon, just click on my Amazon banner, buy whatever you want. Just by doing that, it helps put my kids through college because every dollar goes to my kids college education it doesn't cost you anything and it helps support me and the show if you get a chance to do that i'd be touched and very grateful welcome back to another episode of industry standard with me barry katz i'm so excited i'm here i'm in a corner office I'm across from my guest, Amy Introcaso Davis, who is the executive vice president of programming and development at GSN. And I have to give her the proper introduction. And I know she is probably going to lie prone during this because there's a lot of things to talk about, but I'm going to do it anyway and do my best as my bio that I haven't prepared here is backwards. So I'm going to be dyslexic and read it backwards to help you go through this woman's amazing, amazing career. One of the things she started doing in her career was casting a Playwrights Horizons in New York, where she cast the Pulitzer Prize winning play Driving Miss Daisy. From there, she went on to hold a primetime development and casting role at Fox and then served as vice president for series development at Lifetime. Next, she served as senior VP of development production for Bravo, where I think I first met her, where she developed and executive produced the groundbreaking series, one of my favorite of all time, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, for which she won an Emmy Award, which is probably behind her right now, as well as the two-time Emmy Award-winning series, Kathy Griffin, My Life on the D-List, another show fantastic, and the Emmy Award-winning Cirque du Soleil, Fire Within. She was also responsible 
responsible for the development of the Real Housewives franchise. Can you say billions of dollars? Long-running hits like The Millionaire Matchmaker and Flipping Out and fan-favorite Celebrity Poker Showdown and Showbiz Moms and Dads. She spent three and a half years as senior vice president of original programming and development with NBC Universal's Oxygen Media, where she oversaw development and production of the critically acclaimed summer hit The Glee Project. She also oversaw production of the highly successful series Tori and Dean Home Sweet Hollywood on Oxygen's highest rated freshman series ever, Hair Battle Spectacular and ratings leader Bad Girls Club. Presently, as I said, she is the executive vice president of program development here at GSN, and she joined here in 2011 and is responsible for developing and acquiring programming design to grow GSN's core audience of adult females. During Amy's tenure, GSN launched the biggest hit in its 18-year history, the American Bible Challenge, and earned two nominations in the Outstanding Game Show category for The Chase, as well as the American Bible Challenge, which marked the first time GSN had been nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award in the programming category. Pretty impressive. Please welcome my guest today, Amy Introcaso Davis. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> I was trying to figure out last when we first met. It was at Bravo, right? Probably at Bravo, Probably where at I came Bravo. in and pitched some shitty show that you turned down. <laughs> <laughs> I do. This is what I remember, and I'm still bitter. I remember <laughs> Dane Cook was supposed to do something again. That's right. Backed out at the last minute. That's right. And I'm still bitter. I 20 years ago. You know, Chris Albrecht <laughs> told me about how mad he was at me. About things, and he, he said, "Now I'm talking again." And Doug Herzog, I should share this: my first podcast I ever did, because sometimes you don't remember this stuff. Right, you just said right. that just, I didn't remember it until now. So, boy, it's tough knowing you've been hated before, and now you're coming here in the den. I, 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 I bitter, not hated. You know, we all, as managers, we we, we we have the stain of our artists on us because we have to make those. But Doug told me the story, and I'm, I'm sorry for those of you who listened to the episode, but it was like he's sitting there, and he's like, I'm still mad at you, Barry. I'm like, why are you mad at me? He says, because I invited you, one of three people, I invited you to see the run-through of the new Daily Show that I put together and I was so proud of with Craig Kilborn. I said, well, I don't remember what, what happened. You don't remember? I said, no, I don't remember. He said, this is what happened, Barry. I, 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 you were in. You watched the show. I bring you back to my office there on the studio. And I say, what do you think? And you say, uh, Doug, you're killing comedy. I mean, how could you book Craig Kilborn on this show? This show needs a comedian. This show doesn't need a sports center anchor. He said, I was so mad at you. I was mad at you for like five years. I'm like, why were you mad at me? I, you, you asked my opinion. You brought me down there. Well, I just I, I just thought it was, you know, I, I wasn't expecting it. It was me. I just felt mean to me. I said, you should send me a fruit basket. You got Jon Stewart in there and right. 13 yeah. years, 11 Emmys, and you're all set. Yeah. I sit across you. I'm sorry about that the happening. <laughs> I promise you I'll make it up to you now. <laughs> Well, you have with Ben Glebe, so there you go. All right. Well, I feel great. And I, I feel great being here, and I feel so... Every time I'm around you, there's just a feeling like everything's going to be okay. Oh, well, that's nice. I hope it is. Do you, do you um, feel like you have that quality? I feel like th there are some people will say that to me, but I never feel like that. I always feel like, you know, I just hold it all inside. 
You do. <laughs> I do. Okay, so you're pushing it all down. <laughs> I push it all down. Do you feel like when you you know, you come out of your office and you walk down to the kitchen to get a coffee or a tea or something, and you pass people, do you feel like they do they walk on eggshells or are they like oh? There's Amy. It's great. Well, I hope that they don't walk on eggshells. I mean, I want everyone who works with me to feel like I'm very accessible. My door literally is always open. Except for right now. Except for right now. Uh, but it literally is always open unless there's a meeting happening. I want the exact opposite. I don't, you know, sometimes I wish they feared me more. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you are. You know, it's, a, it's a, it, just like my children. My children do not fear me either. So, you know, um, but no, I think accessibility to, you know, you know, the talent in your group is really important. Yeah. And you like, obviously, when you're in the position you're in, you put a team together. And this is kind of an interesting question for the audience is, for you specifically as a person who is in charge of at least knowing who you bring into your team, what are some of the things you look for in in people that maybe other executives like yourself might not look at? Well, I think it's really, you know, when you're putting a team together, it really is about having different sets of skills. You know, for instance, when I came to GSN, I'd done Celebrity Poker Showdown, but I hadn't really done a lot of game shows. So, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that my team has taught me about game shows. You know, the there are people who are very proficient in game. Um, David Schiff being one of them, a great, great games person, plays games great. You know, I, I am not that person. I can sort of look and see what the trends are out there and how you develop games around that and what kind of material is going to work. But that's not who I am and what I bring to the table. So what you have to do is really look at who you have and who can sort of fill in the holes that you don't have, actually. Um, and it's about having a very well-rounded, diverse team is what I, I think is you know, and that's what I've loved at every place that I've worked at is, you know, you go to certain certain networks and they're, they all seem the executives all seem like the same person. Right. But, you know, at Bravo, for instance, everybody was so distinctly different from one another. I think here at GSN, it's the same, you know, that there are everyone's a little is is different. You wouldn't you if we were walking down the street, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to say, oh, these people are coming from MTV. You wouldn't know where they're coming from. And that's what I like is diversity. Going back to the cold open story, there's a lot of pressure on you with anything you bring forward. And, yeah. and how do you handle the fact that you know, before, like for instance, if you got on a plane and you knew that 90% of the planes are going down. Right. Well, you wouldn't get on a plane. Yeah, but nobody dies over dead television. You know what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, nobody dies when something doesn't work on well, TV. Well, some careers die. So, and some careers die, but it's, you know. Um, yeah, listen, every time there's always a moment when we're shooting on a set 
where I look around at the gazillion people who are working on the set and I think about the money that is being spent on the show and I say, oh my God, I'm in charge of this. <laughs> and there's a moment where I get so nervous and hysterical and then, you know, something happens and you have to deal with it and you move on. But there's always that moment. And, you know, for me, it's I'm always looking over my shoulder. There isn't a moment where I actually feel safe. I hope everybody else feels safe, but I'm always looking over my shoulder. That's what propels me forward. Well, this is what's so amazing about you, if you don't mind me saying this. Every time I'm with you, I feel safe. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. I hope, that, I hope that's it. So it's amazing to me that you take all this inside, you take all the bullets, and... Your expression when you turn around and face people is everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Because the whole part about our lives is, is, I mean, the number one thing is, I always say this, like, even in your personal relationship, at the top of the, at the top of the umbrella is, I want to feel safe. And then everything comes down from there. You want to know that if your partner is off in Chicago and you call the hotel, they're there. You want to know that on your birthday, somebody remembered you. You also want right. to know that if somebody says they're going to pick you up at a certain time when your car is broken down, that they're going to be there. Yeah. And it's all trickles down from there. And it's the same in, in the network. But you're you're never feeling safe. Never feel safe. You can't, you know, I, I've never felt safe. And, and you shouldn't because then that's when you get sort of lazy and kind of... You know, you, you always have to feel like there's somebody, you know, right there behind you. Um, Even after you won your first Emmy Award, you're like, I did it. I made this happen. Granted, I had a team around me, but I was one of the driving forces here and you didn't feel safe the next day. No, no. I, I remember, you know, this year, actually, it's so funny. It, it, this year, this, this year, I just gotten my bonus and, you know, we had a very good year, just gotten my bonus. Um, and I had a dream that night that I got fired <laughs> Wow! and I told my boss and he's like, what is wrong with you? I just gave you a very nice bonus. You had a great year. What is, what is wrong with you? I, I don't think I don't think anybody in this business ever does really feel safe because it's all about your last hit and your, you know, what have you done for me lately? When I interview Kevin Riley next month, hopefully I'll have to ask him <laughs> if he's had those dreams. <laughs> But it's, but you know, I think that's also what keeps you on your toes. You know, you always, you know, and, and for me, it's the fact that I'm still so interested in it. You know, I'm still so interested in, I love television. I love, you know, making game shows. It was something very different for me, which is why I, I came here, um, you know, and that, that I fear that I do really fear suddenly not being as interested anymore because then I know I won't be as good, you know, and that, that you really need to follow your heart on those things. And if you're not loving it anymore, you got to move on to do something else. Some of the greatest advice you could ever give. And the hard part for a lot of people out there listening is that they're in a job that even though they do it very well, they don't like it and they're making good money 
and the people rely on them. They might not be the best at what they do, but they're certainly better than the, the next alternative. And they they want to tell their boss to go fuck themselves, <laughs> and they want to leave. Right. But the they have the family and the kids, mm-hmm. and they don't know how to, to make that leap and do it. And it's hard, but hopefully in yeah. most cases, most people who do make the leap... Uh, make it work. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think people don't believe that they can cast their bosses. And I've said one, I've always said that, you know, one of the things that has helped my career is that I've cast my bosses very well. And that I've really worked with people that I want to work with. And that, and I've worked with people who I can learn from, you know, I think that's super important. And as soon as you start feeling like that, you have it all over your boss and you can, you know, walk circles around them, that's time to move on. Um, because then it's not going to be interesting enough for you, whether it's true or not, it's not going to be interesting enough for you. Every time I go into a podcast, I say to myself, is there anything new that anybody could offer that will blow people away? Mm -hmm. And what you just said, I think is, is one of the most valuable things we've ever heard uh, here. That's fantastic. So for somebody who doesn't feel safe the way to feel safer is to not take as many risks right so getting back to idiot <laughs> test you're in a conference room a guy flies in from new york he's got no sleep he's probably got dark circles under his eyes like a raccoon yes he's completely probably sweaty five o'clock shadow <laughs> you have somebody else who you know that you could make an offer to who shall remain nameless, who probably doesn't even know. And a guy comes in and how does an unknown person come in? And did you always have in your mind like, hey, we're never doing a pilot on the show. We're either going right to series or we're not doing anything. We really approach every we approach every show different differently. And we we try to give it a create the creative process that it needs. So, for instance, with Ben, you know, we he had he just did one guest thing on Mind of a Man. And um, we had the show Idiot Test, which, you know, had gone through a process. Actually, the first run through that the producers came in, I, I will tell you. It was one of my my bad moments of my career where I my just had shoulder I my I was just about to have shoulder surgery, and so my arm was killing me. And they did this run through, and um, the format was just not was just not working. But the material was so fresh and original. And I was like, "Look at you guys have got to get this format together. I'm going to give you three weeks. Come back, do this, 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 and this." And they came back and that's when we brought Ben in Um, because I really believe that the material was so fresh and they made the changes. But you don't just bring in one guy. No, but I mean, there was something about Ben, just to get back to Ben, there was something about Ben when he didn't mind of a man that I thought would be a great marriage with that material. And there was something about his point of view that was sort of, that was super smart because he's, as you know, he's so smart. Um, But also, you know, can make fun of people without them feeling alienated, really. Um, And that is a very, very rare talent that, you know, 
he, he in particular has, um, that I thought that that would be a great marriage of a very special material because idiot tests format is, you know, it is what it is, but, and it's good and it's ironclad, but it's really the material that is, that really makes it shine. Um, and so, you know, when we were looking at it, I, thought, I was just couldn't get him out of my head. Really. I was like, get that guy Ben Cleveland. <laughs> And, you know, Barry was like, I, I don't know. I don't think he can. He'd have to fly himself in. I don't know if he's Barry like Nugent. You. Barry Nugent. That is not you. I don't know if he can. Um, and he did. He was 20 minutes late, by the way. And he did, in fact, have big circles on his eyes. And I was like, look it, you better be good. Because we've all been waiting. But, you know, he's done such an amazing job on that show. And he's, you know, not only is he great in the show, but he is, he does have very good uh, producerial takes on things. And, you know, when you were talking about why a, a game show, a game show is hard to do, that show in particular is really hard to do uh, because you have to be able to follow the puzzles, which are very, very difficult. I, for instance, cannot do any of them, as Ben will tell you. I can't. So you have to be able to do that on your own. That's not a producer in your ear saying do this and do that, although they do occasionally, but it's really him knowing what actually how to do the prove outs, which is very, very difficult. And you have to be very good on your feet, which he is. Um, but you're in the you're you're there. You're you're like telling us all here that you you never feel safe. You have the opportunity to just order a pilot. Right. And play it safe. But you order 40 episodes <laughs> with an unknown guy and seven executive producers who probably have never done anything in their lives. So Funny. every single person on the show, even the <laughs> even the writer, J. Chris Newberg, a guy who writes with Ben, never really done this kind of. So you have all these components of people who never. Now, granted, Mark Cronin came in. Yeah. And who has been on the podcast. Amazing. Look him up. I don't want to go through that or else we'll be really here forever. But still, you have 90 percent of the components of the show are like rookies. Yeah. But the the material is so fresh and you just don't, you don't come across that very often. I mean, that's one thing experience shows you is that, you know, when there is something that's original, you go with it. Um, and by the way, we did protect ourselves. We did do, um, we did do a show that was two weeks before the rest of the shows so that we could actually work out the kinks in the format. So we, we call it a rolling pickup so that we can test it. And we tested actually the first two shows that we did so that we could fix it going uh, along the way. And we actually added a question, um, because we found that, you know, people just love, love, love those questions. And so um, we made changes to the format because of it. But, you know, so so I did protect us a little bit in that. But we just really believed in him. You know, you also just don't often see a marriage like that of talent, concept and material. Um, and when it's great, you know, it's great, you know. Well, you were right, and I want you to know I've been to a couple of networks pitching in the past month, and in both meetings at places that shall remain nameless, I said, like, what kind of a show would you like for this kind of, what do you see on other networks that you think is going well that you wish you had? And Idiot Test was one of them. Oh, that's great. It's so, a great show. So it's that's a awesome. great show. So thank you. All right. What I like to do is I like to go way, way back. Yeah. 
way, way, way back. So take me back to where you grew up, what kind of economic and dynamic was there with your family and and then what was your first thing that happened where you said you know i i'd like to be in this crazy entertainment business um well i grew up on the jersey shore um <laughs> uh, one of five kids um very catholic family went to saint mary's grammar school saint rose of belmar high so school so you wore the outfit so i wore the outfit um my parents were very politically motivated my father went to school with the Berrigan brothers who very famously burnt draft cards and were on the cover of Newsweek. And they were very, very, my first memories was, were of them fighting about who should win the, who should be nominated for the Democratic National Convention, either Robert Kennedy or Eugene uh, McCarthy. Um, so, and then unfortunately my mom died when uh, she was 43. Oh. So, you know, I, I always say to people that some of the greatest executives and artists, and I consider you an artist, I hope you don't mind me oh, saying thank that, you. are ones where the whole is just completely blown through you and you have no control over what happened. Mm -hmm. You're just, it's just over. And it's like, you're like, what, what am I supposed to do? And, and no one, this is the thing in our school system or anywhere around the world, there's no class that teaches you how to deal with a tragedy. Yeah. No family member ever teaches you how to deal with a tragedy because when it happens, they're going through the tragedy and they're dealing with their own pain. Right. And so you're like so alone and you don't even know how to handle anything. And so that normally shapes somebody because as Larry Moss would say, you're always trying to fill the hole that's been blown through you right. with your creative process. Right. Yeah. It was, you know, it was very tough. It was very quick. Six months. She smoked two, you know, packs of cigarettes a day. And, um, you know, she was 43 years old and I was 13 sort of in the, and in the middle of my brothers and sisters. And so it was very, very, difficult time. Um, my older sister and brother were in college. So I was really the one home with the little ones and, you know, so I, be, I, I grew up very fast, you know, at that moment I became an adult was when my mom passed away. Yeah. That's where you lost your innocence. Yeah. And that's where you started the philosophy of not feeling safe. Right, exactly. Why would you ever feel safe? <laughs> Why would I feel safe? Yeah. Yeah. It was very, very tough um, and tough on my father, obviously, who had other issues too. But then, you know, um, he remarried uh, but, to... A, but normally when a, a father remarries and you're a teenage girl, yeah. it doesn't matter if he marries Mother Teresa. Right. <laughs> You're going to be slamming doors on that person and telling her, you are not my mother. <laughs> well, it wasn't that. It actually wasn't. And I'm still, you know, I talked to my stepmother yesterday, so I'm still very close to her. Um, so you didn't give her a hard time? I, well, we did. She's six foot, feet tall, my stepmom. Great looking. I always say Linda Evans by way of Jersey. <laughs> um, she's a great, great character and a great spirit. And we were more friends, I think, just because I was older and it was had been taking care of the kids. But, you know, we had a, we had a great relationship, but still it was tough. And think about her. She came into a, a family of five kids and she had two kids. 
She inherited five kids. That's something. We knew them. We went to school with uh, my stepsister sisters. So we knew them and we went to the same beach club. And um, so and my stepsisters, because my stepmom is such a love and sort of easygoing. And my stepsisters were and and their dad left very, very early in their lives um, were these kind of wild things. <laughs> and we were like, do we have to get those kids? <laughs> There's so crazy and we were very my mother was super strict Irish you know so we were kind of like the good kids to her <laughs> um, that all sort of changed and we're all friends now as as adults um, but it was very interesting because they were very we were all theater geeks and you know they were all they were very athletic and so we're just different kinds of kids Um and ultimately, it all worked out. We learned to have respect for one another. But it was, you know, it definitely was an adjustment. So your first entrance into the entertainment business was theater in high school. Yes. And so then what happens after that? Um, I went to Drew University where I majored in theater. Um, and Drew had an amazing, amazing internship program where the last semester of my senior year, nine of us went into the city at different theaters across the city. New York and City. In New York City and became interns. And I became the intern uh, in casting at Playwrights Horizons where I eventually became the casting director and it was just, you know, a fortuitous place. I went to Playwrights Horizons because, and this is where, you know, when you're young, you make choices just because I had directed a play, a one act play at Drew, um, called say, say goodnight Gracie by Ralph Pape. They had originally done it at Playwrights Horizons, So I was like, I'm going to go to Playwrights Horizons because they did this play. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was the only reason. And I I remember going and meeting with John Lyons, who's a, who was a very famous casting director and then became a, a, a great producer and was the president of Focus Films for a while and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I remember going in to meet with him um, and he was not sitting at his own desk. And the guy's desk who who he was sitting at always put up the post headlines and it was some horrible post headline <laughs> like, you know, he there was some hatch, guy hatcheting people across New York City. Jacko was wacko. Jacko was wacko. <laughs> and John Lyons kept saying, this isn't my desk. <laughs> I just want you to say. But I had, um, they were looking for, uh, they were doing March of the Falsettos and they were looking for an understudy for March of, uh, of the Falsettos. And I said, you know, my friend Lydia's brother, Jason was good in a mall and the night visitors. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I said, I think he should bring him in. So he brought him in. He did not get the understudy for March of the Falsettos. But by the time I was in, in, I I became the intern at Playwrights Horizons. Jason had been cast because of that in uh, a play called Sleep Around Town by Sarah Kernigan and Tom Hulse directed it. And so, you know, they were sort of like, she's a genius. You always had the the eye. (laughs) Just kind of the luck that I had gone to see, you know. But it's not not luck, but it's also (laughs) the fact that you look at and how many interns interned at this office? Hundreds. Yeah. How many people got the gig as the casting director from an internship? No, I... One. Yes, right, right. 
because right. you well and because Andre Bishop was very you know he was just great at spotting talent and nurturing talent and you know I learned so much from him during that time about how to deal with talent and um, to let the talent do the work. It wasn't about me or us. You know, I think that's why he's been such a great producer all these years is that he really doesn't inflict any of his own personal things on, you know, all of the great Broadway shows that he's done and off Broadway shows. I was very, very lucky. I was super lucky. Well, uh, lucky. Yeah. yeah, lucky. It does. I mean, luck does play a part of it. It does. I think that there's fate that happens where you want to be in a certain place. Like when I went to New York, I always heard my mother talking about, hey, 57th and Broadway, that's the place to be. And so I found an office at 57th and Broadway <laughs> across from the old Coliseum books. And that's where that's I right, wanted to be. But, right. But the fact is you got to do the work and you got to show people they can rely on you and they can feel safe when you bring something up. You bring somebody up, they do well, they get a gig. You know, it's just like being a manager. If you call Saturday Night Live over and over again and one of your people finally gets the gig, they're going to start calling you. Right. And then they'll stop calling you when maybe you don't have somebody on for a while. And then when you get somebody back on again, yeah, then they'll call you. Yep. And so, so you're a casting director, you're doing really well. What's the next step? I was the casting director for a few couple of years and my then boyfriend moved to the West coast and said, um, you know, please come out here with me. Who's now my, who's now my husband of 26 years. Nice. Um, did you think I'm not going there? No, I was like, I'll try it. And, you know, the guy follows the girl. I know. Um, But I don't know. I just I was young. You know, I was young. You know, my family was very against it. Andre Bishop tried to talk us out of it. Um, You know, it was a very but, you know, I just I I felt like it was right. And again, I met a a casting director, Nancy Foy, is a great, great casting director. Of course. Fantastic. Um, And she was had been a friend of my husband, my now husband. Um, and she was very nice to me. So I was like, okay, I'll go to LA. Cause she said, Oh, you'll find a job easily. And actually I did have, I, uh, uh, John Lyons hooked me up with Marsha Kleinman, who I, um, ended up casting with when I came out to Los Angeles. So I already had a job when I, I came out. Um, so we were here for two years and then moved back to, to New York. He went back to New York. Went back to New York. He didn't, he made me move out there and then decided he didn't want to stay because he had a tenured position in uh, uh, New York City school that he would have had to have given up. So you go back to New York and how do you find a gig? What happened was I had met a bunch of folks at CBS. Marsha and I worked on a number of movies for CBS and one of them, uh, Christopher Gorman, who was a casting director there, I literally put his name on my uh, on the unemployment form. And as I'm putting his name on the unemployment form, the phone rings and he says, um, you know, would you be interested in being the director of casting at CBS in New York? Rick Jacobs is going to be leaving to go to the West Coast. I may come back and do the job after nine months, but it's your job for nine months. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Incredible. It was just, so I was going to take the summer off and plan our wedding and that never, that didn't happen. <laughs> and at the, at the time when you were there and you took the job, 
uh, tell us some of the shows on CBS that were hit shows and tell um, us what you God, were in so that. God, it's so long ago. I'm trying to remember what, what or, was on or, or tell us a show that you were working on during those nine months helping the cast from New York with L.A. that yeah. actually got on the air and I'm did really well. This, it all blends together, but shows that I worked on during that time were Picket Fences, mm-hmm. um, a couple of David Kelly shows. There at Chicago Hope I also did when I was in that job. There were a lot of dogs. There were. Um, Touched by an Angel, I remember. Um, Walker, Texas Ranger. Of course. I used to get notes from the casting director on Walker, Texas Ranger. The people you send us are too good. (laughs) 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 You know, they're too high quality. They're not going to work on that, this show. (laughs) Try to dumb it down a little bit. (laughs) So you're doing great work there. And what's the next step? Then... uh, John Matoyan, he was the president of movies for CBS. He went over to Fox and he felt that there should be a a casting person and a development person in New York. And so he brought me over there. I met him while I was at at CBS. But you had to leave the job you were in. I had to leave the job I was in, which was which was a good job. And I had twin babies at the time. And it was. So what, what does he do to make you want to leave? Well, he he. His point, and he had been after me, he kept saying to me, you, and Marsha said this, I was pushed by other people, really. Marsha Kleinman, uh, who I had worked with, also said, you know, you really have an eye for something beyond casting, and you should, you should, you should get into development. And I loved casting. I love actors. I love stand-ups. I loved going to the clubs. I love all that stuff, you know, but the truth of the matter is you can't, you can only hit a certain level financially doing that. It's not the and most that, and, lucrative job. And, and, Everybody and, thinks it is, but it isn't. And now the casting directors in the past five or 10 years have been really squeezed yes, really hard. Really. And um, that's why you notice if you are around this business that a lot of casting directors are now doing acting workshops yes. and things like that because the networks have just... yeah twisted them into a balloon Yeah, animal. well, YouTube has really, you know, um, changed a lot for casting people. Whether it's pr- good or not is to be, is really to be debated. But yeah, so, you know, I was pushed. I really was, you know, he was like, you should come and do this job. And so I was kind of the Fox country store. I kept saying, I did the casting there. I did, I was the current person on a show called House of Buggin' that John Leguizamo uh, did. Sketch show. The sketch show. Um, and I also did. There the was d- a guy on that show that um, you probably helped find that really blew me away in a way that I hadn't been blown away in a while. Now I, I hope I remember the guy's name. Now was it David Herman? David Herman. He was good. Yes. And I was like, where did they find this yeah. guy? I thought to myself when I saw that, I was like, God, this is amazing casting. Yeah, he was good. All right, so you're doing that, and so you're sort of in development now when you haven't been before. What's the muscles that you have to use for development that you didn't have to use for casting? Well, it's really thinking about the whole project. Um, And I hadn't really thought about that before. I'd really just thought about the casting and, you know. um, And if you told me that I would be doing that five years before that, I'd say you're crazy. Um, You know, I think for me... 
the the most important thing about that job was that it was incredibly humbling to go into development after having done casting. You know, you think that everybody thinks that they know how to do the other thing and that it's not that hard. And I'd be like, why is it so hard to put these shows together? You know, and, you know, you realize that it's it really takes a talent and a skill, you know, and it was also humbling because I'd been, you know, casting for, I don't know, 10, 12 years at that point, you become proficient at it, you know, uh, sort of had mastered that skill. And suddenly you're in a skill where you're actually a beginner. And it, it was quite, quite humbling, I have to say. And you hired a casting director to work on these shows. And now you are taking suggestions from casting yeah, directors. Right, right. Do you remember the first time you got into a disagreement or an argument with a cast director who you hired for a project who was fighting for somebody and you didn't believe in the person um, as much as they did? God, I don't, I, you know what? I don't, I, I'm trying to remember if there, I know that there was, I'm now to the point where I remember like who I wanted for the parts. And then I can't remember if they actually got them or not. Well, because that's one of the things that people, <laughs> that's one of the things that people don't realize uh, normally in a regular network test normally the game show thing in the conference room i honestly it was the strangest thing about it is that gsn did things way differently than they normally been done before normally you do a test deal you sign a 63 page contract that tells you what you're going to be making in 2019 and uh and you are locked so if you get the show you can't say hey guess what i want more money I don't think when Ben Glebe went into the conference room, I think I don't think he understood that he was testing for a show because there was nothing there. It was nothing. It was just like it, it, the confidence level in the GSN executives was like, hey, we don't need to do paperwork. If he gets it, what's he going to turn down the offer? Let's just do this. But normally well, 40 episodes, but normally in network testing, what happens is, is that the casting director brings the choices to first I always say to to actors who are listening, uh, you hate me for this. As an actor, you only have to fool people four times for five minutes each. Four times you got to go in for five <laughs> minutes each and fool them. You go in for the casting director. You do your thing on tape. She reads the material like she's functionally special needs sometimes. And you don't know what's happening because, you know, it might be an intern reading for you or whatever it is. You do it. She likes you. Then you go back to producers. Five more minutes. You go in, you blow them away, and lo and behold, you get a test deal, and now you're going to the studio. Five minutes. You go in, and the studio is there, and they determine whether they're going to bring you to the network. And then you go to the network, you do your five minutes, and if they like you, what happens in the room is everybody in the room, you leave the room, and all the heads just turn and look at somebody like Amy and say, what'd you think? <laughs> and it's like EF Hutton. Right. They just all turn around, right. look at whatever. And then the president or somebody in that capacity will let them know who they want. There'll be a discussion if there's a disagreement. It's really fascinating, like, because Amy's been on both sides. So as a casting director, although she might not want to talk about it, but I want her to... Mm. There's certain people you believe in, you bring in over and over again, and they never get the gig. But you just see something in them, but you know that they have it in them, but they never get it, and you just keep bringing them in and fighting for them. 
And there comes a point in time where you finally just say, look, to the development person or the person, look, I know you don't believe in this person, but this person is the person. And you have to take a stand and say, you brought me in here for this. And this is the person that's going to do it. Yeah. Do you remember a time you don't you don't remember any time where you like just fought so hard for somebody that you really oh, love? Sure. There are many times of that. Like, for instance, um, well, even in Driving Miss Daisy, Morgan Freeman, Morgan Freeman this is an interesting story. Morgan Freeman had done a show for us at Playwrights Horizons um, that was a, uh, a co-production between Playwrights Horizons and the American Place Theater called Buck. And he was on a show called The Electric Company. I don't know if you remember Of course, that. it was a children's show. <laughs> yes. And so he was late for a couple of performances because he was doing the electric company and we didn't have standbys um, uh, at, for driving Miss Daisy and we didn't for stand-ins. Stand so, we, you know, you either had to wait for him or cancel the performance. So one of the big things I had to convince my bosses at the time was that Morgan Freeman was going to make it to the performance of driving Miss Daisy. Um, another uh, another, another... <laughs> reason not to be feel safe. Um, you know, uh, the other thing about him in that role at that time is that he was 20 years too young. And so, you know, we kept going to all these older actors like Joe Seneca and a bunch of older African-American actors, many of whom passed on it because they had told themselves they would never play uh, a driver again. Um, and so he was of a different era and I think that's actually why he didn't feel so, you know, so obsessed by, by that issue. Um, but it was it really convincing my bosses that he could play the part because the part was for a 60 year old man and he was about 40 at the time. Um, and he was, you know, he was amazing and it changed his career. And he, you know, that's the other thing about it, being casting director. You never get you never get credit for anything. And that's something that was a very good lesson for me to learn is that I have to know what I have done on a project and be happy with it. Don't look for somebody else to give you credit because it's not going to happen most of the time. You have to know what you've done well and you have to know what you've done poorly and you have to be able to stand and stand back and look at both um, and assess. That's the way you get better. I remember having conversations with the late great Buddy Hackett and I used to ask him I say doesn't it bother you sometimes when you you know you don't get the credit for sometimes being the guy in 1953 who was making $175,000 a week in Vegas and did the first two HBO specials and and he used to say listen I'm never going to worry about anybody else thinks because all I need to know, and he used to look up to the heavens and say, as long as he knows, then that's good enough for me. That's right. That's right. And it's a very hard lesson to learn. You know, I think a lot of people in this business are very emotional and they're creative and they need to be patted on the back a lot. Um, but as an executive in particular, I feel that I, I, you know, you have to have that sort of hard hard shell and, uh, but also be clear with yourself, you know, yeah, I did do that well today and no, that was terrible. And we have to make, make adjustments there. 
I think the best executives are able to do that. And then the original Driving Miss Daisy, uh, did the person who played the female lead, it wasn't Jessica Tandy? It was not Jessica Tandy because she could not climb the stairs up to the third floor at Playwrights Horizons so at the time. So you wanted it to be her. We wanted it to be Jessica Tandy, but she couldn't, she couldn't do it. Yeah. And we also, we offered the other role, Bully, um, to a, a great actor named Trey Wilson. I don't know if you remember him. He was in Raising Arizona. Oh, yes. Passed away very, very young. Um, and Kevin Spacey, actually, we offered that to, too. And he almost did it, but then passed. See, these are the things that you do remember. <laughs> It's amazing, amazing, <laughs> the people you know. But, you know, to this day, I don't think more, to finish the loop, I don't think Morgan Freeman has any idea that I fought for him for that show. For that show. And, you know, you just have to go on. But uh, somebody knows. Somebody knows, I know. That's right. <laughs> and I'll look up to the heavens. And so, okay, so you did Fox Development and then you went to Lifetime. How did that happen? Um, I met... Don Tarnofsky, um, who then became Don Ostroff, um, and she was at 20th Century Fox, so she was the studio, and I was at the network at Fox, and we did a couple of crazy projects together. Um, I had a project in development with her called The Honeysuckles, which was a play that was done downtown in New York, which was an all-drag, this is 20 years ago, an all-drag show, um, and, you know... She just thought I was sort of crazy and creative <laughs> and, you know, I'd explain, you know, at that time, like, I don't even think Dame Edna had come to the United <laughs> States. I was explain, had to explain to people, no, they just, you don't explain it. They're just in drag. They just guys in dresses, you know. Um <laughs> So, yeah, so we we hit it off. And so um, when she went over to Lifetime, which was, you know, a re repeat channel at that point of uh, movies, really, there was an original programming at that time. Um, she's she really started it. She started first with the original movies, correct? So, uh, I, the movies had started, had been there. Okay. It was original series that had not started. And we did the first original series any day now Got with it. Annie Potts, wow. which was a show that I had. And this was such a, and I had cast when I was at CBS many years before that, like five years before that. And it was, it was a half hour. It was so long ago that. Natasha Leone was going to play the little girl <laughs> and it got can and it got canceled because Lorimar and Orion had merged and they had, and Lorimar had I'll fly away and they didn't want to do it. And we had this great cast. Thomas Carter was the producer. It was a really, really good script. And so it got canceled and I just always loved that, that script. And so five, six years later, when I went to Lifetime, I was like, I, there's this script that I've always loved. And I think for Lifetime, we'd have to make these characters because it was about two little girls in the South in the 60s, make them, you know, women and looking back and forth to what the relationship was then and what the relationship is now. And so that's how that show came to be. And it was Lifetime's first big hit. 
How'd you get it back? Um, from... You know, the writers had never written there. The writers had never written together since that one pilot. They wrote one pilot. We got because no, normally you can't get projects back no matter how hard <laughs> right. you try because people don't want to give them to you because even if they are free, they want to give them to you because they don't want to have egg on their face when you make them into a <laughs> yeah, big. Yeah, I think it. it There's so much time had passed, and I can't remember. And actually, Kelly Good, who was my predecessor in this job, and who was my actual my West Coast partner at Lifetime um, was very, very important in the development and helped me through that because I really didn't know how to develop at that point in scripted. I wasn't this as... This seems to be the running theme with you every, even up until this job. Every <laughs> job you take, it seems like you're like, oh, I don't know how to do game shows. I don't know how to do development. I'm... Well, but that, but that, you know what, but that's, you know, that's what makes it interesting. That's what's it's it, that's why it's been so challenging at every step of the way so fantastic you're at lifetime things are going well you you bring forward their their first big hit but then you go to bravo why yes well um if i could be so bold i don't see a fired yet <laughs> well because i you know what i do the breaking up but, you know, before I get fired. And that's always the, you know, because I think I probably would have been at Lifetime and probably would have been at Oxygen. But at Lifetime, it was really, uh, it wasn't happy for me anymore. And so it was a very long, complicated story about um, how it was changing, how, how the network was growing and changing. And there really wasn't a place for me anymore. So I once one did a pitch at lifetime. This is what happens. Sometimes you do a pitch at a network and, and you do the pitch and everything's great. Everybody hugs you. It's a great thing. Nice. We're going to talk about it. And you get the call the next day. Yeah. That show was a little too lifetime for us. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yes. Yes. We do that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it wasn't working. So, you know, we, we all wanted to be friends. So we, we figured out a way to get, to make that. So how does Bravo come about? Well, Bravo comes about because I was very, this is a, again, sort of like the way I was with Playwrights Horizons. I was obsessed with Bravo simply because it had a theatrical kind of thing and it only had inside the actor's studio. So I was trying to, and, we, and it was the I, I, only I, other network that I wanted to go to. And I don't mean to interrupt you because I always think about this when I see inside the actor's studio. Normally, like any kind of, here I say this and I should try to mirror on myself, you have this show. The host literally is is probably, I don't even think his mother would say that he's this overwhelmingly charismatic, uh, warm and fuzzy, lovable <laughs> guy. They always say nobody ever turns off the Academy Awards from the set, but shot in a, it looks like a big classroom setting with a, a theater stage with a curtain. He's at a table that they probably dragged over from the AV room. And got his index cards, yet that was their biggest hit. How was that possible? Well, I think it was because he could book it with great people because he was talking about the process of acting and not talking about who their girlfriend was or any of that. And that's how he, he booked it. And it was actually, was interesting about that. It was actually the basis of how we re we built or rebuilt Bravo, which is it all comes back to, in my opinion, inside the actor's studio. Project Runway came to us as um, uh, it was first pitched to me by Eli Holtzman as unzipped with Heidi Klum attached <laughs> the competition, unzipped the competition show and Heidi Klum is attached to it. 
And, you know, Bravo was at a time where we wanted to do other kinds of shows. Queer Eye was the first thing I developed over at, at Bravo. The first thing. It was the first thing I developed at Bravo. Do you see a pattern here? The first thing. I have a very good starting average. I do. Unbelievable. I have, a, I have great beginner's luck. Yes. Luck. <laughs> great luck. beginner's luck. It's all luck. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I do. Um, but yes, uh, uh, Queer Eye. The first I produced some other things at Bravo, but this is the first thing I developed. Um, but you know, Project Runway. Uh, we were trying to figure out what kind of competition shows we could do um, that would fulfill our affiliate agreements because we had very specific affiliate affiliate agreements that we had to be culture or pop culture. And so that sort of narrowed down what the kinds of shows that we could do. And so when project runway came or unzipped the competition show came to us, I was like, aha, that's one that could fit into that definition. And, you know, so there were very few, we didn't really feel like we could do a music show cause we weren't big enough. And so that's really one of the reasons that we decided to go forward with Pro project run, what became project runway. Explain to our audience, not that you were there at the time, because this is one of the things that a lot of people don't understand. Explain to our audience how something can be a hit on a network like Project Runway. And then after five, six, seven years, it moves to another network, the rarest of the rare. Yes. How does that happen? Well, that was just all about the deal. It was all, there was only a five-year deal well, with who the does a five, Who does a five-year well, deal for well, um, I will tell you Bravo to get to jumpstart a network. They may, you know, n not a great deal to. It's jump like when Bill Hillary was at Comedy Central, like the Chappelle show. They did a two year deal. Right. With Who does a two year deal? How are you going to? Well, get I mean, it, 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 at the end of the day, it really worked for Bravo um, because it set the standard of, you know, it was a great show. It also was a very it was not, well, I don't want to go in the specifics of that deal, but it, it was, it, it ended up working out for Bravo because it set the standard for the other shows and, you know, um, and talk about some of the shows there, which I, I just love so much. First of all, Kathy Griffin, um, you know, it's such an unbelievable thing when somebody is willing to take the piss out of themselves. Yes. It's so rare. And to be able to turn that into an award-winning show yeah. is just unbelievable. Tell me how you thought to yourself, I'm going to bet on Kathy Griffin. Well, it was uh, brought to us by Brian Scott Picture, this productions. Um, and, you know, we always liked Kathy. We all always liked Kathy. Um, uh, Jeff Gaspin, Jeff Zucker, all those folks who were around at the time all all really liked her. Um and so we just thought we would take, and we'd done a couple of her specials that did fairly well. Um, and so we just thought we would take a flyer, you know, in those days, you know, docu-series, you really can't, I don't, I never believed you could do a, a, a pilot up. I, I always believed you either had to make the series because, because when you, when you do a pilot, you can only shoot for a certain amount of time. And if you're looking at somebody's life, it doesn't necessarily all unravel in a five week production <laughs> period. So that, um, so when I got to Bravo, we instituted doing just casting reels, um, which is what we did for the real housewives. Um, 
and and didn't do pilots for those kinds of shows. She we knew she had a rich life and, you know, she's super funny. Um, I think that the the real beauty of that show is particularly in the first season is that it was very real. Like we didn't, you know, it there was not anything really staged. And I think that's also why why it, it got nominated um, because it was the most real of all of those shows. And back in those days, when the original Real Housewives, they were very real. Actually, they became got much stagier as time went on. But tell me about casting process of these two things here. So first of all, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, just an amazing group of people. Was that casting process really difficult or was it something that just came together like kismet? Um, it was a long process and it was um, the most fun I've ever had casting in my entire life. I mean, it was I, I just the waiting area was the funniest, <laughs> most fun thing I've ever had in all my days of casting. But we made a pilot. How many of the original people in the pilot made it the series? Uh, three. Three and two got the boot. Yep. Yep. And in fact, when we went to series, there were actually, people don't remember this, there are two episodes where there is a different person that um, uh, Jay Rodriguez is not in two episodes. He replaced someone. So it was a very, you know, labored process. Um, we knew, you know, it was one of those things when Carson Kressley walked in, in to casting, I, it was, I knew we had a show when he walked in. So he was the key. He, for me, he was the key. He was very scary to a lot of other people. They thought he was too outrageous, blah, blah, blah. They came around fairly quickly. Um, and Ted uh, was also very early in the process. And they were interesting. I always loved them together because they were really point counterpoint. Ted's sort of so, you know, buttoned up and kind of androgynous and is kind of, you know, just, just, he could be a businessman. He could be an accountant somewhere, you know, and Carson's sort of outrageous. And in those days, Ted, Ted, Ted's very fashion forward now, but in those days he was not at all. And talk about the casting process with some of the other shows that you worked on here, like Real Housewives. How did that come about? Um, Real Housewives came to us there. Uh, a casting reel came across our desks and we thought, um, and at that point we were very, our mission was to find people who were really great at what they did, somehow artistically, you know, aligned. So the producer who brought it to you, had, had they ever done anything before? He had done some things, but he, not a lot. Um, and doesn't it amaze you sometimes when you're in a position where you've seen everything and somebody just brings a thing that's the real housewives and you think to yourself I can't believe no one's ever brought me this I mean housewives they've been existing forever right, like how right. come nobody's brought me this well we just we loved the we loved the um the characters you know we just loved those characters and how was but that? they didn't really fit any of our our you know checklists that's the thing that you have to always think remember is that it fit one thing, which is that they were sort of aspirational and they lived in a sort of high echelon of society. Um, but beyond that, they weren't, you know, particularly artistic. They weren't, n nobody was great at what they did. You know, a couple of them were, but you know, a lot of them didn't work, you know, they just didn't really hit any of the things that we had at that point, but they were very interesting characters. All right. So then 
you're doing great here. I mean, you're kicking ass again and you move on to oxygen. Yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 I would like to think that I could still be at Bravo if I wanted to be, um, you know, I loved working with there and I still in some ways feel a part of that because so many of those people are still there, which is part of the success. I think, you know, some of the people that were there in the beginning, real housewives are still there. Francis Barrick is still overseeing it. And, you know, there's so, there's a lot to finding the right people and keeping them, um, and I think that's a huge part of that success over there. Um, but, you know, for me, I didn't think I didn't I was starting to get bored in that job. And um, this other job came up and it would be the first time that I'd be the head of programming. And, you know, I always felt like there's something about Bravo when I came there, I f- sort of felt like it was Charlie Brown's Christmas tree and it needed my love. And I kind of <laughs> felt, and that's how I feel about every place I've gone to. It's kind of needed, needed a little love. And that's what I felt oxygen needed. Um, but you know, so that's why, I, and Lauren asked me to go and that's why I decided to go over there. And wow. Jason Klarman, who would, who was the absolute marketing magician of Bravo, uh, was the GM over there. And so, um, got Lauren, Lauren Zelaznik, who yeah. was a genius, um, genius marketer, genius programmer. So, you know, I knew I was, I wasn't, it was new, but also with people that I had worked very closely with. That's the thing that you always, people always think, oh, you're always going to feel going back to the safe thing. I remember going into my first big meeting at oxygen and is the current meeting. So it's like 50 people and I walk in and the place gets quiet. And I looked behind me cause I thought Lauren had walked in the door and then I realized, Oh, that's for me. <laughs> they got quiet for me. I'd always been in the back. You know? I was like, Oh, <laughs> you know, but I was so used to not being that person. I was used to being like the number two or the number three fixing things behind the scenes. And, you know, that was that was a hard thing to get used to, to being, you know, the place where the buck stops. Yeah. I mean, you're a part again of their highest rated series. At yeah. the time. So again, you come in and you do it again. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's all luck, of uh, course. Again, I cast my boss as well. I guess my team well, you know. It's all luck. Um, and so and so, then you you break up before something happens, and now right, exactly. you come to GSN. Yes. And tell us about how your experience here has maybe differed from your experiences in some of the other places. Um, my experience here is different because my bosses are, um, really financial guys. So David Goldhill, who is an amazing guy, an amazing mind, um, just wrote a a fantastic book on healthcare, um, uh, is, does not see himself as a creative though. He has many, he won't admit to this, but many good creative ideas and many, great thoughts about our shows but but that was hard that was hard because I had all these other people you know I still hear Lauren in my ear sometimes and I still hear Francis Barrick in my ear sometimes um you know the people who worked for you 
and, still and the, hear you in their ear. Well, right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, had this great team, you know, I kept about 75% of the team that I inherited because they were so good. Which is very, very rare. Very because rare. normally people come in and that's the worst thing when a person comes in because they come in and everybody here is wondering, am I the one who's going to get fired and when am I going to get fired? Yeah. And normally it's this weird thing where the person who comes in, I don't even understand the philosophy of this, but they never seem to let go all the people that they want to let go at the exact same time. It's just one person gets killed and then everybody's yeah. looking around saying, well, what is, am I going to be next? And, yeah. and so you never know when the bloodletting is going to end. Yeah. But you kept 75%. That's amazing. I never yeah. even heard of something like uh, that. Well, because they're good. You know, David Schiff I'd worked with before, so I knew he was good. I knew Jen Freeman, who's fantastic. I didn't know Barry, but he's great. Barry Nugent. Um, you know, and then we added people as time went on. We did. There were some people who, who were let go, but it was actually more of a, there wasn't that much stuff going on. And I really... Really, at that time, I really have a philosophy of people need to be a little too, slightly too busy in order to be really effective. If there's not enough for them to do, it really hurts the efficacy of everybody. Um, and so we built it back up once we got more programming. I think, you know, the change that I did make was that I think coming in here and I, uh, I had to win the staff over a little bit as I, they thought, oh, this is the docuseries queen. We're going to go into docuseries. And that's not what we did at all. I threw out everything that they had in development in that, in that But well, then you come category. in again and the highest rated show in its 18 year history. Yeah. You do it again. <laughs> Well, Again, Amy. Well, you know. <laughs> patterns. The patterns of our lives show us who we are. Now you're embarrassing me, Barry. I'm sorry. I don't mean to embarrass you. I'm throwing my paper out now. I'm going to the final roundup. But you know what? The American Bible Challenge... Two years before when I was on Oxygen, Michael Davies said, I have this great show called The American Bible The Michael Channel. Davies from England. <laughs> well, the, the Michael Davies what? The producer from England or whatever. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this, I, this, we were doing the Glee Project. He said, oh, it's great show called The American Bible Challenge. And I started to laugh. I was like, oh, my God, that is great. I can't do it. That is great. Somebody's going to pick that up. Um, and it had this sort of circuitous development route um, and was here at GSN and ultimately they passed on it. Um, and so when I was meeting with David Goldhill, he's like, what do you think about the American Bible Challenge? I was like, well, I got bits of that when I was at Oxygen. I think that could be great because it was focusing on a, a constituency that hadn't really been, you know, looked at as a, it was, it's the largest niche in the world, right? I thought if we could do it right, because what's tough about it is you, it's a big book, but it's only one book. So your source material is limited. If we could figure out a way to make it entertaining so that people who weren't that well versed in the Bible could watch it. How many testaments do you use? Um, we use, we use everything. Okay. <laughs> we use old and new. Um, but, you know, I felt like it, we really needed to have someone who was a big name like Jeff Foxworthy, who who really walked the walk. I thought that was really important. And he does. Um, and so, you know, that one is all the ingredients. Once again, um, you know, we did a pilot that was not great, to be honest. And we just knew how to fix it from the pilot. 
uh, we looked at that pilot and we said, we can fix this, 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 and this. And we went to, to air on it. I mean, that's, what's great about my bosses is that they sort of, we don't have to do what other people do, which is, you know, if something doesn't test well, you don't go forward with it. Testing for me is not, is not about whether to pick up a show or not. It's about how you improve a show. Wow. I, I don't think many people knew that. I, I, I mean, that's the only way I use testing is I would never use it to say, you know, unless something tests so terribly that it's clear that it's not, you know, making it in any way. Um, and conversely, when things test really well, I sort of don't, I actually don't take that as anything because often very mediocre things can test very well. Tell me somebody who you didn't hire and they came in to audition for you and you thought, yeah, don't let the door hit you on the way out. I mean, don't quit your day job, pal. And they became a big, big star. Well, I'll tell you, I, it wasn't so, someone who um, I didn't think had something. When I was a young casting director and I was working on this movie with Lee Grant, um, Bill Tresh called me and said, I'm representing Eric Roberts' sister. Would you see her? And so I did. I brought her in. And she was about to set Julia Roberts. Her name was Julia, Julia Roberts. Roberts. Julie Roberts. And I pre-read her for my boss. I was the casting <laughs> assistant and pre-read her for my boss. And I was like, look it. She's beautiful. She doesn't smile at all. <laughs> she Because she, she was a teenager. She was a surly teenager and didn't smile. But we better bring her in for Lee because she's she's got something. And, you know, so we brought her in for Lee Grant. And at the end of the day, she was too young for the part of the 25 year old mother of one or two. Um, but cut to, I go to my friend, full circle, Alfred Urie's movie, Mystic Pizza, and this Julia Roberts come on, comes on the screen, screen, flashing this smile from, you know, that is miles long. I was like, who is that? <laughs> who is that? You know, so she was entirely different. And that just goes to show you, you have to keep seeing actors. You have to keep, because they change, particularly... You know, particularly when they're in that age and they change so much, you just have to keep seeing them again and again, even if you didn't like them the first time, you know. Got it. So quick stories before I get to my final little things and then we'll get you out of here. Tell us a little story about Morgan Freeman. Um. Did you know when you saw him that this guy could have the kind of career that he's had? You know, he was a, by the time I knew him, he was a journeyman actor. Right. So he was castable in anything that he would be as big a, a leading man. No, you know, Kevin Spacey was that way, too. He would pass on. I remember I was working on and he had not done anything big yet. I was working on a movie of the week about um, Oppenheimer and we offered him the lead and he passed on it, you know, like. Who are you, dude, to pass on it? But he really believed he was going to be a leading man in movies, you know? Some of them just really know. You know, and he was a character, I mean, Kevin Spacey, character actor. He had been a character actor all the way up until he actually made it, you know? So, but that was his own personal belief, for wow. sure. Goes back to you and goes back to Ben. Okay. Your biggest disappointment in show business. Biggest disappointment in show business. I'm looking at some of these. Um, you know, there was a show 
I don't know if it's my biggest disappointment in showbiz, but there's a show on Bravo called Tabloid Wars, which was about um, the New York Daily News, which was an amazing, amazing show. Goes back to the desk you interviewed at. <laughs> That's right. And it just, um, it just was the wrong time, wrong network. We were changing, you know, just didn't had the still to this day the best reality character I've ever had. A reporter by the name of Carrie Burke, who was this amazing reporter who, you know, did the New York beat. And so you'd, he'd go to every fire, every whatever ha- bad happened in New York, he'd be there. He, he was like, Zelig, I would turn on the TV and the evening news would be on in some sort of horrible thing. And I'd see Gary Burke walk <laughs> in the back of the screen, you know, just an amazing character still to this day, the best character. And it just didn't work because it wasn't the right network or the right time. Got it. Two more questions. Your proudest moment in show business. Um, I think it's got to be, um, Marching in the gay pride parade when Queer Eye for the Straight Guy launched because that and we had and we it was actually right before we launched. So the promos were on the air. I brought my son with them with me. He was like 13 at the time. It's very, very controversial move in my family and with the guys, actually. Um, But, you know, just to see what it meant to the gay community at that time was such, it was just such an amazing thing, such an amazing thing. Um, you know, and I will say that show I heard from every gay man in my life, you know, when we made that show and how, what it meant to them and what, you know, and reading those, reading emails from 17 year old kids who were coming out to their parents because they liked Carson or they liked Ted or they liked, you know, that they felt comfortable to be able to do that. You know, it was, it it really changed, it changed the way people think actually, you know, and you don't get those. Those are like, you know, once in a career, a moment. And you were all a part of it. Last question. What advice would you give to the young artists coming into a casting office or coming into a conference room or who's been trudging it out, trying to make it? And what can they do to get the attention of somebody like you to get to the next level where they need to go? And what advice do you have for the young executive who's working at a company and trying to get to the level where you're at? in this corner office with the four Emmy awards? Um, well for the young executive, I'll do that first. That's easy. I think the, I think learn to listen. Listening is the most important thing you can do as an executive. You know, after being in the television industry for a hundred years, the one thing I know is that people really like to hear themselves talk. And so in those moments where those hours where I've heard lots of people talk and pontificate, what you do is you learn, you learn things. You actually learn things when you listen and it is by far the most important thing that you can do as an executive is listen, listen to your talent, listen to your folk, listen to the trends that are out there. Listen, um, in terms of, in terms of talent walking in the door, I think it's, you know, you have to find what's right for you. You can't let other people tell you what you should be. You are who you are, accept it, love it and bring it in the door because that's what's going to make it work or not. You know, don't overthink it. But, you know, 
if you're an overthinker like Ben Glebe, that's what's right for you. <laughs> this was fantastic. Amy, I know you just said something and I'm going to encourage the audience to do what you said. Listen, listen to this podcast. You were amazing. Thank you uh, so fun. much for taking the time on this early Friday morning. Yes. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Thanks. And as always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs>